Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had a great conversation today with Pat Whalen, the president and CEO, uh, and I guess in many ways the founder or co-founder with his father of Lumen Ultra Technologies based in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Yeah, this is uh, the story of an over, overnight uh, success story that started 20 years ago. They just celebrated their 20th anniversary. Many, many people, most people would never have heard of this company. They're doing um, microbiology, uh, water testing, um, and they have clients uh, around the world. Um, and uh, it's another good example of an unknown head office company in our region creating uh, jobs uh, through export of their products. Uh, they literally have no revenue coming from this region. Um, uh, most of it is coming outside of Canada even, uh, mostly from the U.S. and the uh, European Union. Um, it's a, just another good story. You know, it, it's a biotech company. There's not many of those in New Brunswick for some reason. And... Uh, it just shows you that uh, you know any we can do anything in this region. That's right, and let me tell you a little story, Don. So, for about the last forty years, UNB has been graduating about twice as many engineers as the local market could absorb. In other words, about half of UNB's engineering graduates don't actually work in New Brunswick. But what has happened is that entrepreneurs in Fredericton over that period of time. Uh, took advantage of that engineering talent and build a little engineering cluster. And a lot of that cluster was around water and wastewater treatment. And so up until recently, Fredericton had among the highest concentrations of engineers relative to population size in the entire country. And that's very much a consequence of UNB and UNB deliberately graduating way too many engineers. And now they're graduating a lot less relative to their competition across the country. And I worry that that thinking has kind of changed. But anyway, this, suffice it to say that one of these engineers graduated from UMB, started a company, uh, and his son is now the CEO, president CEO of Lumen Ultra, which is a direct off, off, uh, you know, offshoot uh, of that uh, engineering water and wastewater cluster, cluster that uh, was started in Fredericton all those years ago. So I just wanted to bring that to the table because it does show the connective tissue between a university uh, research capability, the graduates, and then ultimately down the line, companies like this getting started and very, very successful. He asked himself in 2009, how do we go from a $5 million company to a $50 million company? They took on private equity. They made acquisitions. Uh, and I think the listeners are going to find this a very exciting story uh, of entrepreneurship in our, in our region. Yeah, it, it sure is. And, and, and for the people listening, uh, they also have a manufacturing uh, facility uh, in Fredericton. We don't have a lot of manufacturing in this region, but it's a, it's a business that looks like it's going to grow. Um, he's in Fredericton because he was born there. And he said he's not moving his company because he wants to stay in Fredericton. You know, that's the motivation that happens when people start businesses in this region. They do actually don't want to move. So that's really good news for this region. The other point that I just wanted to emphasize is that he also invests a lot in R&D. We've been talking about R&D and the lack of business uh, investment in R&D uh, nationwide and in, in particular in New Brunswick, where it's particularly low. He said that on any given year, they might spend anywhere between 10, 15, 20% sometimes in terms of investment in R&D. Of course, they're in a business where they have to keep ahead of uh, uh, you know, the changes in the technology. So makes sense. But uh, another good example of a company investing in their future. Yeah, and I think, Don, we have to continue to to look, find and interview and talk to innovation-focused companies like this because I think that really is the future. You know, we've gone about as far as we can, I think, with natural resources. There's not a lot more fish in the sea. There's not a lot more trees to be cut down. So those will continue to be good industries, but the future is going to be these innovative companies that are building stuff the world wants from right here in Atlantic Canada. So this is a good example of that without any further ado. Here is our conversation with Pat Whalen, President and CEO of Lumen Ultra Technologies. Welcome to the Insights Podcast, Pat. Thanks, David. Before we start chatting about Lumen Ultra, can you give us a summary of your personal history and biography? Where were you born? Went to school? 
your career in general leading up to uh, to taking over or taking your role at uh, Lumen Ultra? I wish I could say I was interesting enough to have something uh, different to say, but it is uh, they are one and the same, actually, my career and uh, Lumen Ultra's evolution. So I uh, grew up in a household uh, with a teacher uh, and a consulting chemical engineer. So uh, my father, Phil Whalen, was a consulting chemical engineer after uh, doing a tour with uh, MB Power from 1972 to 1984, and he got tired of the bureaucracy and decided to uh, go out on his own. So that was when I was four years old, and I would hear at the dinner table all these wondrous things that he was working on in the field of water and wastewater treatment all around North America, uh, not knowing what he was talking about. And that evolved to, uh, I think, after I got tired of having a paper route uh, when I was uh, you know, 11, 12 years old, um, I was uh, given the responsibility of being the janitor at his consulting engineering practice at his office. Um, and that lasted until I was about 15 when one day uh, he uh, came to me and said, um, congratulations, you're promoted. You're now a laboratory technician. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and it was actually my brother, Tony, who taught me uh, you know, basic laboratory practice and things like that. So Tony, 10 years older than me, he was working for dad at the time. And um, I came to find out later that the reason that he wanted to be wanted me to be a laboratory technician is he needed uh, cheap labor to do all the research and development activity uh, for an idea that eventually became Lumen Ultra Technologies. Uh, so from when I was 15 to after I graduated with my engineering degree from UNB um, uh, in 2003, we spent eight years doing the research and development to build out um, this technology for measuring microorganisms faster, cheaper, better than any other technology that's used in the water uh, treatment sector. And uh, that, you know, as most entrepreneurs would, most founders would, they think that they have a better idea than just about anybody else. And it's going to change the world and move faster than anything ever has. Uh, dramatically overestimated the market. And it, you know, took us probably two or three years to get any semblance of traction uh, in all of it. And along the way, I was in charge of, uh, you know, making products, making test kits, uh, contacting customers, doing uh, trials in the field, writing reports, managing inventory, figuring out how to work with, you know, FedEx, UPS, DHL, all the different couriers, things like that. Um, generating sales forecasts, doing market research. I mean, you name it, I did it. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was interesting uh, to say the least. Um, it was not what I envisioned, uh, you know, after I uh, graduated from UNB, got my engineering degree and thought I was going to go, you know, create drawings and build stuff and commission plants and, you know, consult with customers on technical matters. And the reality is 20 years later, it actually is 20 years later since I uh, had gotten my degree. Uh, I don't think I've cracked open any of those textbooks that I spent thousands of dollars on uh, ever since because, you know, the engineering turned into uh, to, to almost being a businessman to a certain degree. So I've been with it right from day one. I was employee number one. In fact, uh, I realized I had a entry on my calendar uh, that April 15th, 2003 was Lumen Ultra's uh, official first day of operation. And I was the first person on the payroll. Um, so it's been 20, a little over 20 years, 20 years plus five days. Oh, happy birthday. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, so I, I wasn't aware of that about your father. So, so what was the name of his company that he had? PJ Whalen and Associates. He was yes, not so I'm familiar with that company. I, sorry, I, Pat, I, I just, I, yeah, I did remember that company. Uh, okay, so that's great. So can you tell us a little bit about Lumen Ultra? So what does it do? You, you, you sort of mentioned this measuring microorganisms, but can you give us a little more detail about what the company does? And we'd also like to know a little bit about where you are in terms of the size of the company, your employees and things like that. And I know you've been growing fast uh, 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 in recent years, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Lumen Ultra is, um, I guess at this point, the global leader in what, what are called applied molecular diagnostics, which is a very, very fancy term for we measure microorganisms in anything that doesn't have a heartbeat. So we're the specialists, to, the, the go-to for water treatment, wastewater treatment, oil and gas, uh, paints and coatings, uh, jet fuel. I mean, yesterday I had a, I had the pleasure of 
uh, uh, participating in presentation to all three branches of the U.S. military because uh, they have problems with microorganisms contaminating fuel that goes into tanks, airplanes, ships, you name it. Um, and we're one of a very few companies around the world that have solutions for those kinds of problems. So we provide test kits and equipment that allow people to get real-time information on specific microbes uh, that are contained within uh, you know, a water, a fuel, a soil, uh, even things like food and beverage we've dabbled in previously. Um, Size-wise, we're about 100 employees. Uh, Revenue-wise, we're low eight figures. I don't, being a private company, we don't disclose the exact numbers, but uh, we're, we're uh, considerable at this point. Uh, head office uh, always has been in Fredericton, um, and a lot of people ask me, "Why is that? You know, you should you couldn't you do this in some other place?" Well, that's where I was born, and that's where I was educated, and that's, that's where I was raised, and that's where it stays. Um, but our U.S. head office is in Baltimore, um, and we also have a satellite office, a laboratory in Miami. Uh, we've got three European offices, UK, France, and uh, the Netherlands, and then uh, we also have an office in Australia as well. So we are an international company. Um, you know, the vast majority, I would say greater than 95% of our customer base is actually outside of Canada, let alone Atlantic Canada, let alone New Brunswick. Uh, the U.S. is our biggest market by far. Uh, European Union's number two. Between the two of them, that's probably about 80% of our sales. Um, and growth-wise, I mean, we have we're, we we are a uh, a fast and steady, I would say, uh, growth trajectory. Um, you know, we over the past, I would say, 10 years, you know, we're growing our core business at about 20% per year, generally speaking. So if I could just jump in, Pat, because I, I, I have written in the past and kind of lamented the fact that a lot of our engineering firms were purchased by the national players or the international players like Stantec and XP. And I know we always had an expertise in water and wastewater in basically in the Fredericton region. Um, but this is a really great story of how that sort of iterates into a next generation company that actually offers products uh, and services so it's it's good to hear. So that uh, yeah, we now have Stantec, XP, the other big players in the market, but we also have some homegrown companies that are still doing really cool things. So I'm glad you cleared that up for us. <laughs> well, I could even say you know EXP, uh, Stantec, Jacobs, uh, Corolla Engineers, uh, you know some of the biggest names in the world. A lot of those are customers of ours. So we we specialize in a very uh, uh, very, well, I guess a very specialized area, you could say, which is the intersection of microbiology and water that a lot of these consulting engineering firms don't have that expertise. They know how to take, you know, dirty water and make it clean, but they don't understand the microbiological component. And that's where we come in. Uh, you've already mentioned some of your, uh, clients, but, uh, Pat, but can you give us some examples both of the types of clients and the work that the company does for those clients. Give us a, a sort of a, uh, a variety, I guess, of the kinds of clients that you're working with. Certainly, Don. Yeah, the, um, generally speaking, we follow the Pareto principle in terms of product sales versus uh, uh, service sales, so 80-20, um, maybe a little bit closer to 90-10 recently. Um, but generally speaking, we want to be at that 80-20 products versus services for products. We sell test kits uh, to people that can solve um, water or wastewater or fuel contamination problems uh, around the world. So some of the bigger names uh, in that area would be there's uh, two behemoths in France, one called Veolia, another called Suez. They are the biggest uh, water focused companies in the world. We're talking like I think Veolia is like 60 billion in turnover per year. Um, so those are examples of clients in that sector. Uh, but on this side of the pond, there's also companies that specialize in providing chemicals and service uh, for managing water systems, like a Ecolab uh, would be a name you've probably heard of, or at least you've seen in bathrooms all around the world, because they also provide soap dispensers and paper towel um, to uh, more specialized names like Baker Hughes or Champion X. These are what are called oil field service providers, and they would go out to an oil platform or they would be based in the Permian Basin in West Texas um, and helping uh, companies like a Chevron or an Exxon Mobil extract oil and gas out of the ground. 
when you do that, there's a lot of water involved. Um, and if that water's contaminated, it can actually compromise your ability to get that gas or oil out of the ground. So you need specialized chemicals like biocides, um, which are no different than the antibiotics that we as human beings use. They're just you know branded differently and they come in tote tanks a thousand liters at a time instead of a small pill. Uh, so we provide the test kits that allow them to understand what chemical they should use and how much of it they should use as well. Um, so those are a few examples on the product side. On the service side, we often work directly with like an ExxonMobil or a Chevron, a Shell, a BP, uh, or an international paper, uh, food companies, things like that, where they will send samples to our laboratories in Miami, Baltimore, Fredericton, uh, and we do um, the, the exact same styles of tests that we just heard everything about during COVID called PCR testing to look for specific contaminants that might cause problems in their production processes. We also do uh, what's called next generation sequencing, which is the, the exact same thing if you've ever spit in the cup and sent it to 23andMe or Ancestry.com and they tell you where you came from. It's the exact same test. We just use it for bacteria instead of human beings. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, uh, so I guess um, one, you know one of the questions I I, I have for you is uh, in in terms of your products. You have eighty percent of your businesses in products, twenty percent in services, as you previously mentioned. Uh, where where are those products produced? Are they produced in Fredericton? Right here in Fredericton, one hundred percent of our manufacturing happens uh, right here in Fredericton, in New Brunswick. Um, at, at one point, we had a little bit of manufacturing in the United States as well, but we repatriated that to, uh, to Fredericton. And then um, uh, at this point, uh, the vast majority, I would say probably 90% of our services happen in the U.S., uh, happen between Baltimore and Miami. Can you give us an idea of the volume of kits that you might produce on a yearly basis just to give us a scope? Yeah, we're somewhere, I would say, on the order of... Uh, Probably about a half a million tests per year would be a good estimate. Um, during COVID, that rocketed up to I think I think from the end of March 2020 to the beginning of April 2021, we produced about 30 million tests. So we increased our production by a factor of I don't know what is that nearly a hundred. So your test couldn't detect COVID in the water, could it? Well, the, I mean we. Um, my initial reaction when COVID happened, knowing that our core business was really just laser focused on um, on uh, testing things without a heartbeat, the initial reaction that I had with my business partner, with my board of directors, we were actually in Toronto the second week of uh, March for a board meeting. Uh, we said we just got to batten down the hatches, guys. You know, we're we're probably going to uh, take a bit of a hit on revenue. We just have to pull back on some expenses delay some projects, uh, send everybody home for a couple of months, and then this whole thing's going to blow over. And uh, that's exactly what we decided uh, to do. And I came back from Toronto, we implemented that. And four days later, all of a sudden, I'm engaged with the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, to be able to provide COVID tests you know, for the entire country. Um, because Canada got shut out by US providers, by European providers, even by Chinese providers. Uh, and they, they needed somebody to provide some of the critical components, and that turned out to be us. Um, so I, we pivoted this business from being uh, from essentially doing everything that we could to stay away from clinical diagnostics in our entire history to now we were both feet and both hands into clinical diagnostics in a matter of about four weeks. We went from never having operated in that market uh, to producing a half a million tests per week. Wow. I guess that that's going to be a continuing market for you then, is it? Nope. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> frankly speaking, I, you know, I was um, optimistic that the perspective of markets and the world would change uh, when it comes to microorganisms. Uh, the, the old adage that I had, and this was even pre-COVID, is that microbes aren't a problem until they're a problem. Um, and yeah, I mean, COVID was about as good of an example of, of that as anything I've ever seen. And I thought, given the magnitude of this and how much it disrupted the world, we're, there's no way we're going to go right back to where we were before. There's no way that we're going to go back to a, 
an entirely reactive posture. And I'm sorry to say, we are. That's exactly what we've gone back to at this point. Um, we don't do anything to do with the clinical testing market uh, at this point. We, we exited that market around this time last year. Uh, we did continue doing what's called wastewater-based epidemiology, which is looking for COVID in sewage or looking for things in sewage. Um, but that market has dried up faster than we thought it would as well. Um, so at the end of the day, we've, we pretty much exited everything to do with COVID. And frankly speaking, um, that isn't necessarily a bad thing uh, from, from a perspective of our business, because I have come to realize that we are expert in uh, solving solvable problems that people actually want to solve. And COVID and epidemics and pandemics, there comes a point when people just want to go, they want it to go away. They don't want to talk about it anymore. They'd rather just live with it. And I think we hit that point probably about a year ago, and it's just been a rapid erosion ever since. Right. Uh, your website indicates that you have uh, customers in over 80 countries. I think you've mentioned that already, but how are you able to develop that many markets from a home base in a place called Fredericton? Well, Air Canada likes me a lot. That's why I've got this uh, airplane sitting above my head. Uh, that's my <laughs> million mile airplane from Air Canada. Uh, getting close to two at this point. Probably would be there by now if it wasn't for COVID. Um, but uh, no, the I mean, you can do what we have done from anywhere in the world uh, as long as you know who your customers are, what your markets are, and what value you can bring to them. Um, and actually, I would say COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic, um, pushed that even faster and harder and accelerated that future by probably about a decade because, you know, Microsoft Teams didn't even exist in our lexicon, um, you know, in February of 2020. Now everybody's using it. Zoom rocketed up like a like a starship rocket um, during the pandemic. And, you know, now it's 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 common. Um, we can do anything that we need to do from pretty much anywhere in the world at this point. You don't even really necessarily need to be uh, two feet and a handshake in front of your customers uh, to maintain those relationships or even build new, new ones. I mean, it's, it's still the best way of doing business, but um, you can actually create and grow these businesses from pretty much anywhere now. So I just wanted to ask you, you talked a little bit earlier about EXP and some of the big firms. Uh, is that is that a key part of your market development strategy, like working through these intermediaries, the larger firms? Or do you do a lot of, like, who are your end customers uh, ultimately? I mean, the end customers ultimately are the people that own the infrastructure. So it would be, um, you know, if you think of um, industrial markets, it's your Exxon Mobil, Chevron's, International Papers, McCain's, Irving's, all those kinds of names. Um, but they they don't necessarily get, we'll say, down into the weeds of solving problems to do with microbiology. They hire somebody else to do that. Uh, so that's when we work with, uh, there's really two personas uh, that we target. One is water doctors. And I mentioned some of those names like Ecolab or Baker Hughes. Uh, and the other is consulting engineers. Uh, so that's your Stantec, EXPs, Jacobs, things like that. So the whole idea is that, you know, they're already working with this, these people. Uh, they already um, pro are providing them value. We're giving them something that allows them to do their job better, faster, stronger, uh, ultimately saving the client more money and making them more money. So last year you were recognized as one of Canada's top small and medium-sized employers. It's quite an honor. Can you tell us the reasons why your company was selected for that award? I think... Um, it has a lot to do with the opportunities that we provide our team uh, to grow. Um, you know, we're we're about as fast paced, or at least I've been told, we're about as fast paced of a of an environment as you could possibly have, and that certainly isn't for everybody. But if you get really good at your recruiting um, uh, upstream, you can make sure that you've got the right match right from the word go. So we take a lot of um, a lot of care and caution to make sure that. Uh, the folks that we bring into the organization are the right fit uh, for the organization and vice versa. Um, so that's that's one area that um, I'm told that we're, we're, we're quite proficient at by comparison to some of our sister companies in the XPB portfolio and others that I've spoken to in the market. Um, I would also say that um, 
we have made some great improvements over the past five, six years um, in terms of the benefit packages uh, that, that we provide to our team. So we do things like RRSP matching. Uh, we have a, a, a very uh, robust uh, health and dental plan. Uh, we have, uh, uh, I would say, above market standard paid time off, uh, flex days, uh, uh, volunteering uh, days as well for those that, that, that want to use it. Um, but more than anything else, I think it's about the environment that we create. Uh, it's a pretty fun environment. It's, it's one where you know, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. There's, uh, there's, there's a lot of good-natured ribbing and um, you know, tomfoolery that goes on from time to time. And um, that was especially important, I think, during COVID because we were all kind of locked inside, couldn't, couldn't do anywhere. And in a lot of ways, we, it strengthened our community, strengthened our family, um, and we achieved some pretty great things together. I wanted to ask about uh, growth capital. Obviously, uh, growing 20% on your core um, puts some strain on cash flow. <laughs> um, are you able to assess the kind of capital that here needed to continue to build out your products and develop new new markets? Yeah, I can say that it, it's been a few different phases for us in that regard. In the very early days, uh, it was a combination of, um, of, of family money uh, that, that my, my father put in, as well as loans uh, that we got from entities like ACOA and BDC and, and at the time Opportunities New Brunswick um, that allowed us to, um, to, to kind of bridge the gap uh, from, I'd say, 2003 to about 2008. Um, when it came to, to the end of that period, we were, we were teetering. Uh, like it was, it was to a point where we didn't know if we were going to make payroll and we were unsuccessful, unfortunately, in, in, um, uh, soliciting potential investment from, uh, from some different local providers, uh, you know, the NBIFs, the growth works, uh, RDCs, things like that. And, uh, to, to add insult to injury, that was around the time that, that my father got sick, uh, and he passed away early 2009. So that was actually when I... I guess officially uh, got into the chair of ch uh, chairman and CEO, and um, we had no real choice but to just bootstrap it, just to hunker down, reduce expenditures to the bone, and and work like hell to try to make magic happen on the revenue side. And within about I'd say twelve to eighteen months, uh, it started to turn, and we went from being in the red to the black. And that was not necessarily because we were doing much all that much different. It was more because um, a lot of the seeds that we planted earlier on started to blossom. And from 2010 to 2015, uh, we were successful in just um, self-funding. I mean, we became profitable. We remained profitable. We were generating cash, paying back all of the debt that we had accumulated, actually paid uh, every cent back. Uh, that we had ever borrowed from anyone, uh, including the family money, uh, all the way through to, I think, December 31st, 2015. And uh, by the time we had achieved that goal, which was my North Star during that period of time, I, I sat back and reflected shortly after and said, well, now what do I do, right? What, what, what's my goal now? And yeah, we had some money in the bank and we were a profitable company, but I had greater aspirations. I wanted to learn about... Um, you know, the, 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 the real way to scale a company from, you know, at that time we were 5 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue. And I wanted to uh, get in with, with ever larger customers and I wanted to expand internationally. I wanted to explore mergers and acquisitions, things like that. And I started actually at that time listening to, I was getting probably three or four emails and or phone calls per week from a variety of different, um, you know, venture capital, private equity, and strategics. Um, and short of the long, I took on an investment from a, a, a private equity group out of Toronto called XPB Water Partners. I had dozens of options, but they were far and away the best fit um, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, from there, we just continued to grow and we executed on a lot of those things that I mentioned. And then COVID happened and it took it even further. And, uh, now we're at a point where, you know, we're we're assessing our options as to where we want to deploy cash uh, in that we don't necessarily 
need to go out and seek additional financing. We're we're in a similar boat to a lot um, that we're we're um, uh, we have a lot of opportunities in front of us that we just need to figure out what we want to do with them. We've heard uh, from some IT firms uh, that there you know there's continuing concern about the talent uh, pipeline. Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the initiatives that you're in employing, I guess, for retention purposes. But what has been your experience attracting talent in New Brunswick? Um, my experience with attracting talent in general has been you can only catch fish where the fish are. And if you're trying to recruit locally uh, for skill sets that don't exist in that pond, you're going to come up empty. Um, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, we, in the earlier days, you know, we said, well, we gotta, we gotta find salespeople. Okay. Well, you know, are there, are there any salespeople in Fredericton that have experience selling to the oil and gas sector off the Gulf coast, right in the U S well, probably not. Um, so if you're trying to find that in Fredericton, you're probably going to strike out. And I, you know, I, I was lucky enough, uh, early enough on. Uh, in the evolution of the business that we brought on a, a world-class HR manager um, who has grown with the business and has a very logical approach to these things, had a lot of recruiting experience with both Irving and McCain's, um, so had a pretty wide berth. And, you know, her approach to it was, look, you, you have to first get clear on what it is that you're looking for. And then secondly, you have to understand the market. Um, and where that talent actually exists. And a good case in point is uh, the vast majority of our product uh, research and development uh, now actually happens in Baltimore, Maryland, instead of in Fredericton. And the reason is uh, the, the DC metro area of which Baltimore is a part is number two in North America for biotech. San Diego is number one. Um, so it give you know by by establishing that center of excellence in Baltimore, we're able to now uh, pick from the best talent in North America, if not the world, uh, rather than um, you know trying to 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 make it happen uh, like magic in Fredericton. So we do want to actually talk to you a little bit later about magic. Uh, but I did want to uh, ask you to compare your experience in Fredericton from uh, from running a business, the operating cost environment, whatever, wherever you want to take it. How does New Brunswick compare to Baltimore or to some of these other jurisdictions in terms of, uh, you know, R&D tax credits, supportive government, uh, university partnerships? Can you give us a sense of how Fredericton compares in your perspective from your perspective? I think Fredericton punches above, above its weight uh, and New Brunswick punches above its weight, um, you know, relative to the talent that you can get in Fredericton uh, compared to the cost of that talent uh, is superior to just about any, any other jurisdiction in North America, best I can tell, and, and Europe as well. Um, it just doesn't have as much diversity, right? So. We, we can very easily do all of our manufacturing here in Fredericton because there's a steady stream of great science and engineering and business grads coming out of UNB uh, or UDM or even Dalhousie uh, in Halifax as well. Um, you know, we can do those kinds of things uh, with that kind of talent uh, right here from Fredericton at a lower cost base than we would be able to do in Baltimore. But if we want to get into the, you know, the groundbreaking future technology, you know, the newest of the new, um, we, we can't really do that from here. Um, so first you have to, you know, we have to get clear on what we can do and where we can do it. I can also tell you that, uh, the, the community in, in New Brunswick of you know, our regional, provincial, uh, and federal, uh, partners, you know, the ECOAs, the EDCs, BDCs, ONBs, um, you know, all of those, uh, those, those agencies have been instrumental in Lumen Ultra even being here today. Uh, they were extraordinarily supportive during our early years. They were extraordinarily support supportive during growth years and even more so during COVID in, in helping us to be able to, um, identify opportunities. It's not just about funding. It's, it's about, um, them helping you to, uh, think outside of your, your, um, your, your tunnel vision sometimes and think about other opportunities. 
Um, so they've been extremely supportive. And I, I think that based on what I've seen thus far, uh, it's a, it's a, there's a lot more per capita uh, support provided here than there is somewhere like Maryland. Um, and from a tax credit perspective, I mean, um, the, the infrastructure that we have for tax credits in Canada, best I can tell, uh, doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, there's there's no other jurisdiction in which we operate uh, that has a similar type of structure in terms of the tax rebates. So uh, I think that's both good and bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I'll venture to guess we're probably going to talk about that a little, little bit more. Yeah, we want to come back to research, but I did want to just stick on that issue of business environment for a minute. The, you know, you are different. There's lots of IT firms in Fredericton. It's quite a cluster, but there's not a lot of biotech. There's not a lot of what you're trying to do. Now, it's interesting the the um, the um, the fact that you sort of were born out of the engineering sector is kind of cool because that was a cluster and continues to be a cluster in Fredericton. But I wanted to get your thoughts on why there are not more biotech firms in New Brunswick. We have, of course, PEI is just killing it with the biosciences cluster. Nova Scotia has, you know, probably two dozen firms, serious firms in biotech. Um, you know, why hasn't New Brunswick been able to develop that sector? Do you have any thoughts on that? And, and what could we do to see more firms like yours grow and thrive in New Brunswick? You gotta make it a priority, plain and simple. PEI made it a priority. And they they took one of our uh, one of our star companies, uh, Kynova Bioworks, and they brought them over to the island. Right? They they made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Uh, here's here's the incubator space. You know, it's it's brand new. You know, you can do whatever you want with it, and we're going to give you the support that you need. Um, you know, if if I was in that position, if somebody if I had a great idea but I lacked the infrastructure here, and somebody came to me with a Godfather offer, yeah, I'd, I'd do the same thing. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one, that's only one example. Um, it's not to say it can't be done. I mean, um, we're maybe categorized as a biotech firm, but I would say we're, we're more of a diagnostics firm at this point, which is probably even more unique, uh, in, in Fredericton and, and in New Brunswick, but, um, be that as it may, I think that both, you know, from my experience of having, uh, built Lumen Ultra, uh, and also in my experience of being, on the board of um, formerly BioNB, now part of ResearchNB, uh, it has just never been made a priority by policymakers. It's always been almost an afterthought. It's almost been taken for granted where you have, you know, really, I mean, we've got a few behemoths um, in a very, very small pond. You know, you have your Irvings uh, who dominate the forestry and the forestry sector. You've got the McCains who, uh, you know, ag food sector, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, then the aquaculture opportunities, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of opportunity. I mean, resource, resource wise, New Brunswick has an inordinate, uh, uh, per capita advantage and we don't use it. Um, meanwhile, you know, I think it is great. It's wonderful. And, you know, it was made a priority 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, um, you know, in, in the, the heyday of NBTEL and that's, it's stuck. And you know what, that's great. It's a, it's a high tech thriving sector. Um, but if we really want biotech to, to thrive in New Brunswick or any industry to thrive in New Brunswick, policymakers have to make it a priority, not an afterthought. Uh, Pat, a main reason uh, that we wanted to have you on the Insights podcast is to really talk about R&D activity in Atlantic Canada, we recently had a podcast with uh, Ed Greenspan of the uh, Public Policy Forum. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they indicate that private sector spending in, on R&D in the region is 65% below the national uh, average per capita. And of course, Canada is well below that when it comes to business R&D. Uh, New Brunswick is particularly low in this area with uh, business investment uh, 76% lower than the country overall. I, I wonder if you can tell us about your um, focus on R&D, maybe talk about your resources that you're devoted to it and, 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 uh, and how important it is uh, to your business. You, you told us that a lot of your work is being done out of Baltimore, but 
uh, just tell us uh, kind of how important that is and, and how many people are working on, on R&D for you. Yeah, generally speaking, um, historically, we've always spent somewhere between 10 to 15, maybe 20% of our operating costs on R&D, on research and development. Um, and that's everything from developing a new test kit to a new piece of equipment, to a new software algorithm, to a new way of presenting data to, uh, to our customers or monetizing data for our customers, things like that. And while, you know, Baltimore is kind of the hub for product development, uh, hard product development, the, the uh, software development, uh, the, the knowledge uh, transformation process development, things like that. A lot of that still does happen here in New Brunswick, uh, as well as uh, we've got uh, application engineers in places like Nova Scotia and Alberta and things like that. So a lot of it does happen on this side of the border. Um, but based on the numbers that you just presented there, Don, I would say we're, we're again an outlier in that we're, we're spending way more than industry average um, on research and development. And that's largely because uh, we operate in a market uh, where we're trying to create the market as we go. Um, our business model is not based on uh, going in and displacing the competition. Our business model is based on going in and uh, explaining to our prospective customers that we can create value where you didn't think it was possible previously. And to do that, you have to be innovative. You have to come up with new ways of, of uh, making that technology accessible, making that data interpretable. Um, and that's, you know, I, I don't foresee that changing for us anytime soon because the market is still uh, pretty nascent, um, even in North America and Europe, which are our dominant markets to say nothing of uh, the, the rest of the world. Uh, so R&D is critically important to us. It always has been, it always will be. And uh, I wouldn't anticipate those ratios changing anytime soon. I think we'll, we'll continue to be on the higher side. I would imagine that the business that you're in, uh, you know, that there's, uh, there's new developments all the time, right? That it's continuously improving. The race is on for the next best test. <laughs> and if you don't, if you're not developing them, you're going to be following behind. So that's got to be a big pressure for you, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, we, it, it's, it's the, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg had a, had a famous saying that Facebook, they move fast and break stuff. And that's, that's <laughs> what we do too, right? We're, we're always trying to come up with the, the new magic key, the new, um, the new, uh, uh, whiz bang product. And the reality is, um, there is a very, there's a much larger graveyard of ideas, uh, than there are successful products on the shelf. Yeah. So I guess the question that I wanted to ask you next is really, how do we, create an environment that here in this region, at least that stimulates more business investment in R and D. What, you know, what, what do we need to do? I mean, um, do we need more research uh, power, horsepower in our college and university systems? One of the, I was on the Dow board for 10 years and I was struck by the fact that we had so little commercialization coming out of the universities in this region. It was, it was striking. There was a lot of research going on, but nothing was coming out the other side. You know, do we need to have a better tax credit system? What's missing? I think there's a few things. And on the topic of Dalhousie, we've been a sponsor um, or a contributor, a partner, I guess is the best way to say it, um, at the Center for Water Resource Studies um, at Dalhousie. Um, the Dr. Graham Ganyaw set that up probably close to 20 years ago now. Uh, and we've been involved for at least 15 years uh, as a, a we actually uh, pay into uh, the program being a partner. And it's been wildly successful for us. It's been a huge talent pool. Um, we've got at least, uh, I'm going to say at least five um, Dalhousie grads on staff now, probably closer to 15 that have come through Lumen Ultra during, during uh, its, uh, its evolution. Um, and it's, it's a great example of where those partnerships have worked and they have created um, a significant commercial benefit because um, I would say that Graham is a, um, he's a little bit more of a businessman than he is a researcher. Uh, he's a little bit more of an entrepreneur than he is a professor. Um, and he's just got, uh, he's got a, a, a bit more of a market focus than I think a lot of the, a lot of those um, uh, uh, academics tend to have. 
Uh, so part of it is that, right? We, we, we just have to work to stimulate a little bit more entrepreneurial spirit um, out of the academics uh, that are that are operating that research pool, because the reality is we have a lot of brain power um, in in Atlantic Canada. We have a lot of really smart people, um, and they just have to be motivated in the appropriate ways. They have to be guided in the appropriate ways. And I think bringing a little bit more of that entrepreneurial spirit, like you know um, that the, that they've had at UNB, the TME program. I think that went in the TME program started when I started at UNB in 1998. Uh, so it's like 25, it's probably even longer than that, but we need more of that um, in order to, to bridge that gap from research to development to commercialization. Um, I do think that one of the, the, the handcuffs that we have is the tax credit program itself. So to my uh, experience in other jurisdictions, take the United States as an example, they don't have tax credit programs. They have targeted grant programs. And for you to get that grant money, you have to think it through. You've got to think through what it is that you're planning on doing ahead of time. You have to submit for the grant. You have to pass a review. And then maybe, just maybe, you might get awarded that grant. But by that time, you're already thinking about the market. You're thinking about how am I going to sell this? How am I going to get this out to my clients? Where am I going to make it? Who am I going to hire? All that kind of stuff. So the, the, the you know, putting all of that planning up front rather than, well, we're just going to hire a bunch of people and we're just going to start playing and developing things. And hopefully something useful pops out. Um, you're putting all the planning up front instead of it happening after the fact. And that leads to a more uh, commercial focus. Uh, you know, the, 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 the research and development has to have a point. It can't just be general in nature. Um, and I, I truly believe that that is one of the limitations that a, you know, a more uh, tax credit uh, uh, centered program um, creates because it relies on the individual, it relies on the business to make sure that that research has a point rather than front loading it and forcing them to get to the point before they even start. So... Um... You talked a little bit about the fact that you now have some wiggle room to be thinking about what's next. We'd like to sort of dive down a little bit more on that as we get close to the end here. Now, don't we don't want you to give up all your secrets around what you're thinking. Uh, but are you are you um, can you give us some indication? Are you looking at possibly strategic acquisitions or developing new markets or some sort of a large scale partnership? Like what 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 what's next for you as you as you as you work on that uh, that plan to go from five to fifty, and I guess even more uh, in terms of uh, of your growth potential. Yeah, I mean we've got we've got lots of different options, um, and we have done uh, we've done four acquisitions in our history, and that would be over the past four years, I guess. Um, we have so much growth uh, potential in our core markets of North America and in Europe. Um, that we can choose to focus there and just execute like hell. Um, you know, hire salespeople, get get greater exposure, get a little bit deeper uh, with the existing customers that we have, uh, go directly to the end users. We could also choose to expand internationally, right? We look over to places like uh, China or Latin America um, and, and, you know, invest in sellers and invest in the infrastructure to be able to penetrate those markets. Um, we've thought about uh, expanding our technology portfolio and, you know, gathering up more things that we can sell to the, the same customers that we already have today. Um, and I can't say that, you know, we've chosen to do any one of those things specifically to the expense of the other. But what I can say is that the as the world continues to move forward, I mean, we look at things like um, chat GTP, GPT and, and its integration into Microsoft's products and uh, Google Bard and, and whatever else is going to come down the line in terms of artificial intelligence. It's, it's the next evolution of um, automation, right? Uh, and, and autonomous uh, uh, sensing uh, and controlling of different processes. And that's uh, our next big step is actually uh, converting our, um, our, our test kits into uh, automated measurement systems. And this uh, July, we're going to be launching a new product called Bug Count Guardian, which is essentially 
It's like uh, the size of a mini fridge and it takes in samples and it spits out results and that's it. And there's no more human being required to take a sample and do a test or any of that. It does everything for you. Um, I see that being probably the biggest transformation that we will go through uh, in the history of this company uh, in, in converting a lot of our customers from uh, human driven testing to automated testing. Um, it's been tried before to varying degrees of, of success in the, in the microbiological world. Um, and we think we've got the code to, to crack it and crack it wide open. So that's really the next big thing for us. Uh, you know, we, I, I spend my days doing a lot more thinking than doing. Uh, and I'm always, uh, you know, consuming information and processing all of that through my brain as to where's this thing going to go next and what are the opportunities and occasionally something useful pops out, but, um, I guess uh, uh, I'm still focused on the uh, the next big thing being automation at the moment. Sorry, can I just ask, sorry, Don, before you ask the last question, can I just ask you, just because I'm curious, I live by the water and we've got we've got some water issues here. Is that is that a residential market thing or is that more of a like municipal water systems thing when you talk about the automatic, automated systems? It's actually a, a layer deeper than that. It's more industrial water at this point. Um, the, the reality is for, uh, municipal, well, for residential and even municipal, uh, a lot of the testing that gets done in those markets is all regulatory driven. The only time you ever really need to test a, a well at somebody's house is when it's, when it's sold. Um, otherwise anything you do is, you know, it's on your own dime and people tend not to really concern themselves again until it's a problem. Um, municipal, you know, we operated in the drinking water space. We, and we continue to operate in the drinking water space, um, you know, for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. Um, but we've never found much traction, uh, because there's not a lot of motivation to do anything more than what is the written law of, we have to test X number of samples at Y number of locations each month. And that's it. And doing anything more than that, we just deal with it on a, on a, uh, reactive basis. The industrial market where there's actual, you know, uh, profit margins on the line, if something goes sideways, we've found to be uh, infinitely more receptive. So our, our beachhead, I guess, our focus is in those industrial markets where the value proposition resonates uh, with those customers. And as we gain traction, you know, over the years, I, I hope uh, that um, the innovations we bring to market will find their way into municipal and eventually into, into residential as they become more market standard than anything else. Uh, one of the things that you brought up earlier <clears throat> in our conversation was your attachment to keeping the company in the place that you were born. Mm -hmm. I think that's the motivation of a lot of people. Obviously um, we see it in a lot of the conversations that we're having, you know, people want to kind of live where they were brought up, but I, I wanted to ask you about the, the head office uh, question because, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of head office companies that are doing kind of export business like you're doing. Um, obviously you, you're not getting a whole lot of revenue from Atlantic Canada. It's all from somewhere else. And, you know, this is a really an important story for people to understand that being an export oriented company has extra value because, it's bringing new money into the community that would otherwise not be here. Gets to support all kinds of public services through taxation and other things. It's really important. But there's also another component of being a head office, and I wanted you to comment on this. Is that you know, you have you have, I'm sure, some sense of uh, a responsibility for giving back to your community. Most companies do. And we like to highlight this because a lot of people don't understand how important it is to have businesses who view their responsibilities at the community level. Can you just talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you're trying to do to support your community? Great question. And, and I, uh, I, I agree with everything you said, Don. I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of things that uh, we've got. What do we have? Three professional engineers on staff here in Fredericton, including myself, all of which uh, are chemical engineering alums uh, from UNB. Um, and uh, we all have been involved uh, since we graduated in uh, mentoring and or uh, judging annual competitions for, for engineering uh, programs and trying to, to uh, 
uh, help that next generation uh, be better than we were. And we've, we've actually hired quite a few uh, engineering grads out of UNB as well. So we've maintained a connection uh, to the, uh, the engineering community at UNB. And I, I believe uh, that that has also happened in different faculties and all that kind of thing, because UNB is probably our largest alum, Dalhousie would be second. Um, we are actively uh, involved in um, supporting the SPCA, uh, something that um, my family has always been a very strong advocate for. We do annual donations there. Some of our team members have volunteered there uh, as well. Uh, I have been involved in a number of different boards and advisory uh, uh, engagements, if you will, uh, with uh, young entrepreneurs uh, here in the city of Fredericton. I know at least a couple of my executives have uh, started to participate in those kinds of same activities uh, in recent times. Um, and in general, as I mentioned, there's there's you know other volunteering that happens uh, by the uh, by the team. Um, I want to say that there's been at least a couple of circumstances where we've had people go into middle schools and, and high schools uh, to to talk about microbiology, which you know hardly anybody knows what it is um, in in uh, those earlier days, um, and a bunch of other stuff like that. A lot of educational, a lot of supportive yeah. um, uh, things that. Uh, uh, that, that, that I and our team have done, uh, over the years. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised by that. Um, the final question is really, you know, getting your opinion about the future of the region and the province and kind of where things are going. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting things that have happened over the last half dozen years, obviously. And, uh, we, David and I have seen a lot of really good news stories coming out of the region. How do you feel about uh, what's going on in, in the future for your province and the region overall? Well, I think the, the, the one, if you can call it a benefit of COVID is that the, the secret got out that this is actually a great place to live. Um, it's a great place to, to, to have a family, to raise a family, uh, to, um, you know, repatriate your family after you went, to, went out to Alberta or you went to Ontario, you can come back and, um, you know, you can buy an entire city block for what it costs you to buy a house in, in Toronto. Um, but joking aside, I think that um, the pandemic revealed uh, that uh, you don't have to be in Toronto, you don't have to be in Calgary, you don't have to be in Edmonton, you don't have to be in Montreal you can do what you want to do from here, uh, which is attracting back uh, some of those expats and or people, you know, who were born somewhere else and they, they actively want to come here. Um, so for that reason, I'm quite optimistic. I mean, you look at the population growth figures that we're seeing in, in the major centers in New Brunswick, it's, you know, it's the best that we've seen for, well, for probably my lifetime, to be honest with you. Um, the, the economic numbers look great. The only worry I have there is how much we're, um, we're robbing the future to pay for the present, so to speak. You know, are there investments that are being um, curtailed that we aren't going to see the impact of in, you know, until five or 10 years out? That's you know, always a concern. It's always hard to balance the books in that way. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the one thing that we, um, we in Atlantic Canada, in New Brunswick, uh, we just, we don't have a very good track record at self-promotion. We're very, um, we're very passive, right? We're, we're very, ah, shucks, you know, we're, we're, we're just Atlantic Canadians. I mean, you know, we let Ontario run the world. That's fine. You know, we'll just be over here. We need to be a lot more vocal. We need to be a lot more passionate, um, about, about who we are and why, uh, we can make a strong, um, a strong impact on the world. And for that, we need vision. We need vision. We need leadership. Um, we need bold decisions, uh, bold uh, predictions, bold visions. Um, I don't feel like we've had a lot of that uh, over the past couple of decades. And uh, my, I, I guess my optimism uh, for the future will be furthered uh, if we see uh, a, a greater, bolder, uh, more progressive vision for the future of this part of the world. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm always hopeful that that's going to happen, but I'm always skeptical it's going to happen as well. 
Pat, if you ever get tired of doing the CEO thing, you can uh, you can get into politics. That might be the ah. next. <laughs> Listen, yeah, I, I told my wife a few times, David, that um, if if I ever get that idea to hit me in the head with a shovel, because something's <laughs> loose. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Congratulations on your 20th anniversary. I didn't realize uh, that was uh, this year. And we wish you all the best over the next 20 years as you build this uh, world-class company very exciting story and really glad that you told us about it today. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, Pat. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.